Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial medical benefit insurance for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted by visiting coverageshingrix.com. Happy New Year and welcome to the first Annals of Internal Medicine podcast of 2024. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to provide you with a quick summary of the new material published on annals.org over the last two weeks. 2024 is a presidential election year in the U.S., which makes the first article I'll mention very timely. The American College of Physicians policy brief that offers recommendations about what needs to be done to inform healthcare professionals about the links between the electoral process and health and encourage civic participation. The paper offers recommendations to support safe and equitable access to the electoral process to advance health equity for both patients and healthcare professionals. It explains the connections between voting and health in the U.S. and why ensuring equitable access to the electoral process advances health equity. The second new article I'll highlight is another American College of Physicians policy paper. This one is on team-based care. The American College of Physicians says that team-based care is associated with better patient outcomes and lower burnout for physicians. But despite these benefits, barriers to its adoption exist. In the paper, the American College of Physicians makes recommendations on professionalism, payment models, training, licensure, and research to support the expansion of dynamic clinical care teams. ACP also argues that physicians should be the primary leaders for healthcare professionals working together in a multidisciplinary team-based care model. The paper goes on to recommend that clinical and coordination responsibilities within the team be determined based on what is in the best interest of the patient, with patients being made aware of the unique qualifications of all members of the team. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Rebecca Brienza writes, quote, the team-based care model needs to be dynamic and flexible. Teams should include physicians and non-physician health professionals to be best able to benefit from all members' expertise and experience. Leadership of the medical home team should be designated to whomever is the most qualified for that role, including expertise, knowledge, and skills in clinical content, communication, interprofessional collaboration, and leadership. Most important is that ultimately the team leader should be able to facilitate utilization of all team members' expertise to collaboratively contribute to provide the best patient care. In 2014, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, in collaboration with the American Board of Internal Medicine, replaced the Resident Annual Evaluation Summary Rating System with the Milestone Rating System to address several shortcomings in existing residency assessment and feedback methods. Although past research indicates that these types of changes have the potential to reduce evaluation biases, studies examining changes in bias across rating systems are sparse. In light of this, researchers from the American Board of Internal Medicine compared evaluation ratings for 59,835 U.S.-born and non-U.S.-born Black, Latino, and Asian internal medicine residents during the pre-milestone period 2008 to 2013 and post-milestone period 2015 to 2020 using U.S.-born non-Latino white residents as a comparison group adjusting for the American Board of Internal Medicine certification exam score. They found evidence of substantial rating bias against Black and Latino internal medicine residents that was greatly reduced when milestone ratings were adopted, yet rating bias against U.S.-born Black residents persisted. In an accompanying editorial, authors from the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences suggest that the current study is an important step in unraveling and combating the persistent nature of bias in the evaluation of internal medicine residents of color. 
Food insecurity is a major driver of health disparities in the United States. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, the federal government expanded the social safety net, including increases in spending on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP. Little is known about how food insecurity changed among low-income adults over the course of the pandemic. The next article reports data that suggests that benefits expansions during the COVID-19 pandemic may have helped to mitigate food insecurity among low-income adults. Researchers from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School used data from the National Health Interview Survey to examine food insecurity among low-income adults during versus before the pandemic. They included 2019 as a pre-pandemic reference for both 2021 and 2022 cycles, but excluded 2020 because the onset of the pandemic created challenges in conducting the survey. The data showed that food insecurity decreased from 20.6% in 2019 to 15.5% in 2021, despite worsening unemployment and economic loss. By 2022, food insecurity rates had returned to pre-pandemic levels, but remained lower for low-income adults receiving SNAP benefits. According to the authors, these findings highlight the importance of financial relief and nutritional benefits for vulnerable populations. Sotateracept is an investigational medicine that has shown positive results for treating adults with pulmonary arterial hypertension. In initial trials, epistaxis, skin telectangiectasias, and thrombocytopenia were more frequent among those taking the drug compared to placebo. However, to date, it has not been associated with recurrent gastrointestinal bleeding. But the next article describes the case of a 68-year-old woman with pulmonary arterial hypertension who received sototeracept for approximately 12 months during the phase 3 clinical trial and its long-term open-label extension. The patient was hospitalized for gastrointestinal bleeding on six instances while receiving the drug, which resolved when therapy was discontinued. A study of more than 9,000 persons screened for lung cancer found that rates of downstream procedures and complications associated with screening are substantially higher in routine clinical practice than previously observed in the National Lung Screening Trial. Lung cancer screening using low-dose computed tomography reduces lung cancer mortality and can help catch lung cancer earlier in high-risk patients. As with any cancer screening exam, lung cancer screening can also lead to downstream procedures, complications, and other potential harms. The rates of these harms and how often they may occur in clinical practice are unclear and may deviate from what was observed in the initial trials. With support from the National Cancer Institute, researchers from the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, in collaboration with researchers across the population-based research to optimize the screening process network, studied healthcare data for 9,266 persons screened for lung cancer across five U.S. healthcare systems between 2014 and 2018 to identify rates of downstream procedures and complications associated with screening. The authors found that among all screened patients, 15.9% had a baseline scan that was abnormal. Of those patients presenting abnormalities, 9.5% were diagnosed with lung cancer within 12 months. Of all patients, 31.9% underwent downstream imaging and 2.8% underwent downstream procedures. In patients undergoing invasive procedures after abnormal findings, complication rates were substantially higher than those observed in the National Lung Cancer Screening Trial. 
According to the authors, their findings highlight the need for practice-based strategies to assess and improve variations in the quality of care and to prioritize lung cancer screening among those patients most likely receive a net benefit from screening in relation to potential complications and other harms. Maternal mortality is worse in the United States than other comparable nations, especially for non-Hispanic black women, for whom maternal mortality rates are 69.9 per 100,000 live births compared to 26.6 per 100,000 live births for non-Hispanic white women. Emerging research suggests that respectful maternity care contributes to maternal morbidity and mortality. Researchers conducted a systematic review of 37 studies to define respectful maternity care, evaluate the validity of tools to measure it, the relationship of respectful maternity care with maternal and infant health outcomes, and strategies for implementation of respectful maternity care. The authors identified 12 frameworks for defining respectful maternity care that were characterized according to disrespect and abuse or rights-based frameworks. Twelve tools to measure respectful maternity care were validated in 24 studies based on content validity, construct validity, and internal consistency. They noted there were no gold standard tools for evaluating criteria and validity. Additionally, there was only one trial that examined the effectiveness of respectful maternity care for improving maternal outcomes, and it provided insufficient evidence. There were no studies of respectful maternity care effectiveness for improving infant health outcomes and no studies evaluating the effectiveness of implementation strategies. An accompanying editorial by authors from the Wheel Cornell School of Medicine suggests that the results of this review should guide development of a standard definition of respectful maternity care and a framework to address disrespect in maternity care. The authors also note at the policy level, this review highlights the importance and necessity of prioritizing the evaluation of efforts to implement respectful maternity care, underscoring its integral role in health care quality for birthing persons. The authors also advise that health researchers working with patients and communities should be funded to develop and test measurement tools, along with implementing a series of interventions to provide respectful maternity care. Heart failure is a complex clinical syndrome with high mortality rates. Evidence shows that current risk stratification approaches that try to capture the biological complexity of heart failure are of limited clinical utility. High throughput proteomics could improve risk prediction, but its use in clinical practice to guide management of patients with heart failure depends on validation and evidence of clinical benefit. In the last article I'll highlight today, researchers from the National Institutes of Health developed and validated a protein risk score to stratify mortality risk in persons with heart failure using a community-based cohort of 7,289 plasma proteins and 1,351 patients with heart failure. In the development cohort, 38 unique proteins were selected for the protein risk score. The protein risk score demonstrated good calibration reclassified mortality risk, particularly at the extremes of risk distribution, and showed greater clinical utility compared with the clinical model. According to the researchers, these findings foreshadow the clinical utility of large-scale proteomic assays for precision risk stratification of patients with heart failure. This tool may help clinicians select candidates for rapid drug titration or patients with advanced heart failure at particularly high risk for adverse outcomes that should be considered for mechanical, circulatory support, or transplantation. That brings us to the end of this podcast. I hope you go to annals.org to take a look at some of the new material I've highlighted here. Wishing everyone a happy, healthy 2024. 
Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial medical benefit insurance for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com.